RPG. I am Brendan, and I'm here with Ben. Hello, guys. Good to see you again, and we are joined today by our good friend, one of my best friends in the adventures of role-playing and the adventure of life, Jeff. Greetings, everybody. Jeff plays uh, Baracus, the tiefling, in our Out of the Abyss game. He's a warlock. And uh, Jeff and I have played together. We are veterans of many campaigns, both him running and me running and uh, him playing. And I've seen many of his characters. We've always had a great time. Um, Tell us a little bit about your experience there. Yes, we'd all like to hear about uh, your experience here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I've played more games of uh, Vampire the Masquerade than I can count these days. A wonderful game it is. Yeah, lots of games of uh, Requiem, uh, Pathfinder, Classic D and D, A D and D, three point five three. You go all the way back. Oh yeah, all the way back. And I still remember how to calculate Thaco. Well, <laughs> yeah, I never actually learned to do that. I always just you know that's one of my big and embarrassing like gamer gamer secrets it's not a secret anymore is it I, I, I still don't know how to do it i think it's ridiculous it's completely non-intuitive why is better armor zero remember when three came out and i was like at last this makes sense higher <laughs> armor is better uh, it's all about the negative armor class negative armor class so uh jeff you have run like fucking everything you've played fucking everything you you are uh skilled game master in a variety of fields. I think you're pretty well known for your game mastery, right? At least in our local circles. I think so. I mean, I think I'm best known for uh, a game of Masquerade that I ran that ran for about 10 years. Oh, wow. And kind of on hiatus right now of a game of Dark Heresy that was going for about four and a half years. We're taking a little bit of a break before we uh, continue on with that story. Yeah. Yeah. This is the one that you run in the, at the depot, right? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. So, um, I mean, what draws us all together this evening is we're going to do the recap of last Sunday's Out of the Abyss session, and I'm interested in hearing you guys' thoughts on how that went, because this was like a session one, you know, after preludes are done. Yeah, it was but, the first time we were all like together. Yeah, and, you know. For a full session, anyway. Preludes are always kind of like, oh, you know, you can't really die or anything. It's kind of weird to die in the prelude. So this was like the first real session. And I, I definitely had some mixed feelings about the way that the session turned out. But I guess the first thing we should do is we should just talk about, like, what happened. So I mean, what happened? I mean, refresh my memory. Uh, we are uh, slaves to the Drow Empire at this point. Um, you know, I think a huge portion of the session was us uh, sort of acclimating to uh, – being slaves or at least uh attempting to find a way to not be slaves um we got acclimated to doing a lot of the menial labor that the drow required us to do yeah um in fact uh a few of us had to clean the drow temple um that was uh we we spent our time cleaning and yet trying to find any any and every tool available to us to try and escape 
And was was that was that you you Jeff you Baracus Baracus found the uh... I found I found a poison dart that I think can very easily be uh, re repurposed into a lockpick to get us out of our cell, which is more important to you than having a poison dart. Yeah, just to be clear, <laughs> as soon because as soon as I'm like ten feet out of the cell, the anti magic field goes away and. I have yes. access to all my warlock powers, which are far more powerful than that poison dart ever thinks of being. Well, that's that's a good point. There were, there were three of us, right, that were uh, involved in cleaning the temple. It was uh, you, I, and the gnome. Mannix, who Manix, was played by yes. Alex. Yes. Um, and uh, being sort of the flighty creature of fancy that Mannix was, um, he, uh, you know, did some sort of reckless spells there at... Uh, nearly cost us when uh, he made the uh, statue of Wolf's eyes glow and it was discovered by a priestess. Let's be specific. It didn't nearly cost us. It nearly cost him. You and I would have been absolutely (laughs) fine. (laughs) This is true. This this begs a sort of interesting point where people talk about um, the first level cantrips, cantrips and zero level spells and first level spells. People talk about how these are utility spells and how that like, like the game is supposed to move kind of like magic users are supposed to have a lot, of, a lot of sort of versatility with these things. And I think that what Alex is trying to do was to really exploit that to create a situation where there would be, like, chaos and stuff. Wait, there was a big – did we discuss this already? There was a big – there's a big idol of Loth in the center of the yes, temple and the shrine. Yes, there was a giant, giant idol of Loth, a statue with glowing – not yeah. glowing yet, but with gem eyes. Yeah, with gem eyes, and he used prestidigitation to make the eyes appear as though they were glowing. So when the, the worshippers of Loth entered the temple – um, they would, they would, it was his intention that they would fall into some kind of like frenzy of like, uh, religious fervor and think that something weird was going on. And I mean, I mean, how did you guys feel about that take? Obviously it didn't work as the GM, as the DM, I'm, I didn't let it work. I didn't think that that was a valid, uh, ruse. Well, I, I, I honestly thought that it assumes that on some level they have no knowledge of basic magic. Yes. This yeah, and I think also it's one of those things of better reconnaissance and intelligence on the specific sub-cult of Loth that we were dealing with was one of those things that should have been done prior to trying a trick like that. Make sh- I mean, if they're fairly sophisticated as they appeared to be, it's not going to do anything. Now, maybe if they're a more backwards, sort of regressive cult of Loth, maybe a trick like that works. That's a, that's an interesting point. Like imagine I guess if you're like playing in some kind of like weirdly backwards area where there's like it's kind of like in the the sticks, which I guess you could say because we we do we did point out this is a frontier outpost at, at great depth. However, I as a GM and as an arbiter, I was watching that situation and my first take on it was exactly the same as Ben's, which was well, I can't like have this drow priestess like fall to her knees and start going into like hysterical convulsions because I mean, she, she must know about first level spells, you know, especially when you get into the backstory of the, the schism inside of drow society between male magic users and female clerics and the way that like the control of that society, especially in like the last like decade worth of supplemental material being released, has just become like a bigger and bigger deal. Like, if you imagine that Drow society is actually a facade that's being run by like a cabal of male wizards who are just like messing with the females' brains or something, then that works. Then, mm. then what then what Manx is trying to do works fine. 
Or, but, or for instance, if it is a backwater cult that is like sort of cut off from everything and they are ignorant of certain things, then certainly. But it does predispose an idea of ignorance. It does. It does. And I, I was talking to Heather about this. And I was like, look, I couldn't make it work because if, if something that simple worked, then you would just never take the drow seriously as antagonists for the entire rest of the campaign. Well, I think one of the other True. problems is it also presupposes, and I don't have my book in front of you, I've, I seem to remember that, like some of the flavor text around the Prestidigitation spell even talks about how these are like the most simple tricks that magic users like teach themselves when they're first learning how to channel magic. So anybody who has any understanding of magic is going to at least have a passing familiarity with it. And I really think that they're meant for doing the... I mean, I applaud him for trying to think outside the box. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's classic role playing where you're trying to take a little bit and turn it into a lot, and that's and that's fine. It's just, uh, I, I just it was it was too big of a swing for something so small. So he ended up getting pinned against the wall by some drow, and they were all like, "Oh, it's cut out his tongue." And I was like, "Well." He, there was such a good moment, I think, where uh, we were watching him about to get his tongue cut out by the uh, by the priestesses. And uh, I decided, as my character, to step up and help him out in the hopes that uh, he isn't too loose of a cannon in our future. Um, I uh, decided to first get their attention. I didn't, I didn't want to like just start talking to them, because if I did, then I don't think they'd take me seriously. So I decided to, to use a, a stealth and make it seem as though I appear right next to them. Um, and surprise them. You rolled, you rolled pretty well on that. You know, I mean, you're a monk, and that definitely Yeah, it worked. certainly helped, yeah. Um, and uh, once I had their attention, I, uh, I tried to be the voice of uh, sincerity, and I urged um, the gnome to uh, give a heartfelt apology and also took some of the burden of his uh, future actions onto myself. Mm, yeah, yeah. Cause I'm actually glad you reminded me of that because I, I sort of forgot that I said that. Oh, I hadn't forgotten about it. In <laughs> fact, I uh, I was thinking that uh, if he proves to be too unwieldy, there's a lot of bridges kind of around there that yeah. we can just uh, toss him right off one. <laughs> My character pretty much decided to just watch what was going on. One, yeah. he figured he would learn something useful about the gnome, or two, he would learn something more about their captors. Either way, it's another piece of information that can be filed away and used for later, although I was preparing my one of my spells in case. Ah, I knew it. In, I knew it. No, I was. I could care less if they cut out his tongue, but in case they decided to punish the the other two of us for <laughs> his misdeed, I wasn't going down without a fight. Uh, so the other the other half of the party, they were kind of caught up in some other stuff. Like uh, they had to clean out some gears on the, like this 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 elevator thing that yeah that they um, use it, the drow that were uh, involved in uh, I guess uh, shuffling us to and fro. Um, are quite, you know, uh, tortured and sinister characters in and of themselves. And uh, certainly the one that escorted the other uh, three of our players to do their job, or two players in that two. NPC. Yeah, two players in NPC. It was the, um, the NPC Serith, the, um, the outcast drow that's in the prison with you guys. Yeah, there are a few NPCs that are also imprisoned with us right now. And, um, and again, you guys kind of overlooked opportunities to roleplay with them. I don't know if that was because I did a shit job, like, portraying them, and, or if it's just that you guys are just no, disinterested. I, I, thought, I thought it was sort of organic. The people that, like, we... Uh, that we thought we could we could uh, interact with on a certain level that we wanted to we interact. If I had, I, I would have to agree. I mean, I, I I've had a long conversation with the uh, deep gnome, 
the surf nibbling. Yeah, you had a good conversation with him, and people seem to be interacting with the dwarf. I think if I were to rerun the game, or point of advice for other GMs, I would cut a bunch of characters that are in that dungeon because they give you like twelve, and it's just too fucking many. And to be totally honest, like you guys, there's a couple of you guys I haven't even met. Like I just let, I just like dropped three or four of them because they were exhausted. I think none of us really wanted to take the time to interact with the orc, the full oh. orc that was in there. I don't think any of us had any. I don't think any of us have a way to interact with. Well, them. we did try. I mean, yeah. we don't know. True. Well, I mean, that is the thing, but I can tell you, like, some behind-the-screen shit. Like, they don't... He has one language, and it's orc. <laughs> okay. So, it's like... So, unless you got a half-orc in your party. Mm-hmm. Or... Or one of your characters is, happens like, to speak orc for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I must admit, I was I was this close to maybe taking, but I decided against it. Yeah, well, I mean, considering your character's backstory, it wouldn't have made sense. Yeah, I know. Since there's not... There's not the, from the depths of the Underdark from which you hail, they're not... Exactly. And I think, I think most of the characters we have interacted with the NPCs that there was any chance of interaction with. I mean, the our, myself as a tiefling and the drow that's with us are not really likely to go want to have a long conversation with the Kruatoa or the surface dwarf. Or... Yeah, and well, I mean, you know, uh, Dustin's been interacting with the surface dwarf a lot. Yeah, I think that um, I, I sort of approached it as... Uh... I sort of look at the whole experience like I'm going to break free. It's going to happen. I'm getting it out of here. And those people that are useful to me are the people that like I feel can help in that. And um, so on that note, my my uh, sort of positive positivity towards people in the cell has been sort of limited to like the dwarf and the Sferf Neblin. Um, and uh, I was hoping that some of those, the, the new humans might have been uh, helpful as well. But with uh, with uh, you know Kale's reaction, Kale's played by our buddy Dustin. Uh, with his reaction to uh, to them, I, I realized yeah, he's like he, he hates them. <laughs> yeah. he, like, he like he resents their presence in a certain way, uh, which is yeah, would not not foreseen by me again. I, I gotta say, from from Baracus's point of view, the new humans have been introduced, or at most uh, something to be shoved into the guards to absorb incoming arrows i mean really all it takes is sort of a willingness to sort of like fight for your freedom and i don't think that some of these people definitely in the cells have them or well, or even if they do have it they're not capable like I mean, the elder the elder in there you guys you guys are heroes i mean as much as we're playing a game that has like some anti-heroic characters i think it's important in Dungeons and dragons in particular to to differentiate between characters who are heroic in their their abilities and in their drives and people who are non-heroic you see what I'm saying? Sure. Like, like, I I reject the notion of the adventurer as like job description. You know what I'm saying? I like the idea of the adventurer okay. as like being like a person of like, well, uh, how do I put this? Like this weirdly kind of like cosmopolitan, like seeker of of the extraordinary. I was listening to this podcast today, and they were talking about werewolves in uh, Dungeons and Dragons in particular. They were like, like. Should is it reasonable for a player character to know that silver harms a werewolf? And some one of, some of them were like, "No, it's not, because werewolves are rare." And the other ones are like, "No, what are you talking about? It's a fancy ecology. Werewolves are fucking everywhere." And I think that that's an interesting point because if someone said, "Well, well, they're adventurers. Of course, I should know it." I just I just really feel like as much as we as GMs and as players read these books and they're full of all these like secrets of Faerun and like powers and abilities, the game should feel like 
the average person is still just an average person. That a hero, whether they're good or bad, is still like a very unique and powerful person inside the context of the world. Does that make sense? I think it does. Uh, but what you're basically talking about there too could be applied to like other games, right? Like you're talking about uh, games set in modern nights, for instance, right? Well, you mean like, for vampire or for vampire or werewolf? Or I mean, the same thing can be said. Like if I run into if 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 for some reason. You know, I, as a player character, run into this unfathomable werewolf that I've never seen before, you know, but I assume because it's like, sh- it's like shifted and walking around on two legs and quite bestial. Can I, can I, can I try silver? Is that like fair game? Well, I mean, I definitely, I mean, and, and to be totally honest, and they were talking about this on this podcast about like, well, vampires and werewolves are the kind of, are like folkloric creatures and so they're not necessarily like mythic you know what i'm saying okay. so there's going to be a difference between mythic creatures and folkloric creatures and so and i've always been i think when i run world of darkness games i've been very generous about like oh yeah sure you, you know these things vulnerabilities well i think it, i mean it opens up an interesting thing it's like kind of like every time you watch a zombie movie yes the, the people in the zombie movie have no have never apparently watched a zombie movie. I, I just had this conversation with Brendan the other day about uh about The Walking Dead and the new Fear of the Walking Dead show. It's not new now, obviously it just finished its first run, but how everybody feels like they've never seen a zombie movie in this. Like I, I, I Yeah, mean, they're set in our Yeah. Right. Like that's the thing about when I run World of Darkness, I feel like people in my games can go to a movie theater and watch Blade. You know what I'm saying? It's not like they're like, what's a vampire? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I feel like the world of darkness is supposed to be a dark reflection of our world and the pop culture tropes that are in our world are in that world. You know, I think there's Marilyn Manson albums in the world of darkness. And if you want to make up some other band to go along with Marilyn Manson or replace Marilyn Manson with a different band because it suits your plot, then that's fine. But like, it's like, it's, it strikes me as, as weird, especially in zombie movies yes. when people seem it's like, is this some parallel dimension where they don't have zombie like fiction? Yeah. I mean, they've been a, what, uh, a facet of like uh, popular American culture now for what? 40 Forever? years, I mean, 50 years. Well, I, I think time. I think you could certainly argue. I mean, they've been, but big, big part. Let's say the last decade, the last 15 years. Dude, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. With World War Z, yeah, Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the yeah. I mean, they've had five seasons of Walking Dead now, or six oh, or eighty-five. I don't know. Interminable amount of plus seasons. plus how I mean the graphic novel for years before sure. that years still running, still running, still ongoing. Um. But we are so far off topic of what happened in that game. So, yeah, so those other guys that got sent to clean out this machine, and I wanted to put Kale, who is a drow hater, in a situation where a drow had to, like, work with him. And there were a couple ways that that could have gone. Yeah, I actually found that more interesting, I think, than... So their, their party kind of got split up, right? Like, like yeah. uh, the, the NPC drow and uh, the drow male Sarah. prince, Sarah, and uh, Kale uh, got stuck in the unenviable job of cleaning a machine that ostensibly was an elevator to raise and lower a yeah. platform to go to beneath the floor of the cavern. And uh, they had to sort of work together. Uh, and and Kale, I found it interesting that uh, he ended up sort of working together, but still sort of rejecting uh, the plight of his fellow prisoner. It was yeah. quite interesting. Yeah, he really hates those drow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess I did take that away. He really hates Drow. He really hates them a great deal. And then Heather got put into a position with her character where you know she was facing like the unwanted advances of a 
of a like horrifyingly mutilated uh, drow warrior named Nim. And um, we did like the first like the first that I've ever run like almost rape scene. And I felt like that was probably a little bit edge pushy, but because even we've been around a lot of World of Darkness and we've played with a lot of females over the years. And I've never felt comfortable with any of them enough to run a uh, scene like that. But I feel like Heather's up up for it. I felt like she was she was like ready for that kind of content. Yeah, it didn't seem like it it it, it you know turned her off about the game or anything. Yeah, she so. didn't seem perturbed or anything. And then there wasn't really nothing. Nothing happened. She you know in the last second there was something that interfered. This other you know, drow guy, this other mutilated drow guy, one of the many mutilated drow that, that occupied this outpost, came along and put a kibosh on it. Um, and I think that was valuable for the players that saw that scene to realize that there are that the drow that are acting as the wardens of this outpost are not a unified block. That there are their own factions, and possibly now we have ways to uh, play them one off against the other. Well, as as the DM, it was it's been my um, goal f- from before we even started. To make sure that the culture of the drow seemed multifaceted, because I really feel like if you don't do that, then the drow become very um, comic booky, where they're like these guys who are kind of like like I'm goon number one, and I'm goon number two, and I look, we all look kind of the same, and and uh, we all have like, this kind of spider fetish, and I don't know why, you know what I'm saying? Every time we go into combat, we yell out for Lolf. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, it's it's really easy to make them kind of comic booky, and I just didn't want that. I wanted to do something a bit more World of Darknessy. So, so I've been reading a lot of the Drow books. And another piece of advice to um, prospective DMs of Out of the Abyss is: take a second, go on Amazon, get a copy of uh, Menzabaranzin City of Intrigue for Fourth Edition, which I know it's a much maligned Fourth Edition book, but it's a great supplement. It has an awesome poster map of uh, Mensbaranzen in it, and it really explains drow culture, and it really explains all the factions and all the weird little quirks and all the weird little forbidden sub-religions, and in a very kind of like, one of the things that, that those uh, source books were maligned for was um, their, the way they were kind of like dumbed down and they weren't like just bursting with content, but what that means is, is it's written in a very streamlined way, so you don't have to sit there like, like pouring over it you know what i'm saying yeah. you can you can flip through it really quickly and there's, there's even little things about like icons where it's like trying to tell you like like how treacherous a drow house is with on a scale of one to five you know what i'm saying so you can just sit there and you can just like look look at it real real fast make these, these snap decisions and riff on it um so yeah that was one of the things i really wanted to do with the game was to make sure that everybody understood that like the drow weren't just kind of like clones of each other you know yeah and i think it's it sort of succeeded because at this point we've seen what three different four different maybe maybe perhaps four different factions already i think you actually have seen more than you th- well sure but just that we're aware of as players at this point or as characters um well and i definitely agree that's, that's a great thing but i mean one thing you're always worrying about is i mean we're basically in a prison and the question is, is how tightly run is that prison? And while drow society in general can be very fragmented, yeah. I mean, a prison's still a prison. And if it, if the person in charge is running it with a tight enough fist, it can be very difficult to kind of insinuate and start playing. Yeah. But and I just took that as being what you're discuss- what you're kind of expressing there is I was like, well, that's like a lawful evil prison. Like a lawful evil prison would be very kind of like, 
you know, very crisp and very orderly and everybody would be sucking in their guts and know exactly what's going on. But I wanted to run a chaotic evil prison where essentially there's like all these little cliques and feuds and all sort of like roiling uh, agendas beneath the surface that you guys with with exploration and whatnot could kind of get into and and, ex- and expose those cracks and, and 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 use them for your own for your own um, ends. Yeah, um, and that's definitely coming to light for us, I think, as uh, as characters. Um, certainly, we had the introduction of uh, one of Kale's uh, earlier contacts, um, Huntress, right? I think it's her name. Well, yeah, yeah. This uh, drow warrior uh, female Huntress uh, took took Kale aside, and she wanted to kind of grill him for her own information. Um, and her motives in, in that regard are ambiguous. Am I they right? They are ambiguous, but at the very least, they they serve to bludgeon the rest of us with the understanding of the fact that they are fragmented above us. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if we didn't get it already, then here was another chance to get it. Yeah, yeah. And so she's made a deal with you guys, essentially, to form essentially a party. Yes. When, in, in the event of a prison break, which she has kind of proposed to help move along, and um, in that in that eventuality... She wants to form a party with you guys to survive in the Underdark on her way to a, a city that the under Underdark dwellers know of um, called Mantal Derith. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting to sort of, maybe we left this out earlier to point out that um, security ultimately doesn't seem very like strong in this uh, prison. We sort of were like left to wander at some point like as slaves to sort of do what we needed to do. Um with the sort of caveat that, like, you know, life outside of this outpost is brutal in the Underdark. And, uh, you know, we have no gear and no way to really um, to, to sort of scrounge any. Um, and to that, what she, the service she's actually providing for us, the, the important one is that she's going to get us some gear. She's going to She's going to return our belongings so that we can continue on our journey. Well, that has been inferred. Yes, That has correct. been inferred, so... And I mean, we, we certainly, I mean, our, we have enough characters that I think have enough skill that once we get some basic equipment, just ways of carrying water, some food stored, those type of things, I think most of our characters can survive long enough in the Underdark to get away from the prison and to a level where survival may not be easy, but it's at least a doable feat. True. And so we kind of called it at that point, like, because... I was just really getting the feeling like I, we were getting close to time, and I didn't want to run the prison break going up against time. And I felt like we were just essentially a few. We were like maybe thirty minutes to an hour worth of talking out because it seemed like we were, we were very close. Yeah. So um, that means that we're through session one, and we still haven't had what would you would call like a like a combat. Like a real legitimate combat. No, there was like a. Uh, I think the most combat was seen before this was during the gnomes prelude. Yeah, and no, that was like you know it wasn't even like real real um, combat. That kind of brings us to our next point, like sort of like one of the main sort of thrusts of what we're talking about this evening, which is experience, experience in role playing and and uh, the various games we've played. We're looking at an alternate system, right? Yeah, that's that's really why I want to talk about experience today. Is that I kind of proposed this to the party, uh, 
in either Out of the Abyss or the Player's Handbook or the DMG somewhere, it gives you this, um, I think it's in Out of the Abyss, because there, Out of the Abyss has, a, has its own system for travel through the Underdark, and uh, because travel through the Underdark is different than in the Player's Handbook, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's a, it's a different, it's a different bag. And um, it's talking about the rate of advancement, and it says at one point, um, you can simply do away with giving out experience awards and instead um, advance the characters a level every two to three sessions. So what my proposal was to the group, because I hate calculating experience, I think it's like one of the most like asinine things, it's like the most asinine ways for me to spend my time as a, as a DM, is that I just am going to keep a little ledger and then it's just going to go two, three, two, three, two, three. You attend two sessions, you get up a level. You attend three sessions, you go up a level. And that way, if you miss, you know, then you slow down a little bit because you missed out on some stuff. Um, if you come all the time, you'll advance a little bit quicker. I think it's, I think it's fair. I think it'll all kind of average out in the long run. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's interesting because um, there's always this sort of like drive in Dungeons and Dragons, right? Where like, you know, you wonder about. I mean, it's pretty well known that advancement comes from like beating up monsters, from right? Killing, from killing shit, yeah, man. from killing shit, exactly. From killing shit, and uh, you know, there's there's this drive to like, like you want more combat because of that, because you know that's like sort of how you advance as a character. But that ends up diluting the story, absolutely. Because at that point, what you're you're not playing adventures, you're not you're not you're certainly not playing guys who are invested in a story you're just playing essentially a genocidal like killing machine right yeah or like a long-term like miniatures battle game i I think that's always been sort of one of the the one thing i always felt that kind of held back some of the D &D from role-playing was because if you no matter how good the role-playing really was and how great the session was in terms of role-playing and character development if nothing got killed nobody advanced yeah no absolutely and 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 you know i think that we all desire to see our characters not just i mean grow both in in the story but also grow with with abilities too um sure i mean that's critical to the enjoyment of dungeons and dragons is is seeing your character develop yeah and i i for one think that this this alternate system that you've proposed is is awesome for us I think uh, we were unanimous in our acceptance of it, right? Which really kind of blew my mind. I was sort of expecting there to be like, like I was kind of factoring into my plans for the evening at least like half an hour of, of kind of like heave ho, kind of like, well, I think this and I think that. And then at the very end, I was going to say, yeah, well, I'm the GM and this, we're going to do it this way. So uh, I've heard all of your complaints, but I don't give a fuck. Well, you know, I mean, you think about it, a lot of the games of D&D I've played over the years, it seems like for every eight to 10 hours of table time, is about a level. See, and I think that that's yeah. how they view it. I think that that's how they view it. I seem to remember old Dungeons & Dragons, too, when you start reading the DMGs, they talk about, like, the scaling. Of, and that, remember they have those complex systems with CRs oh. and, like, scaling. And, and you, need to be, you need to be running encounters that have such a certain minimum of scaling so that your party can advance in a certain, like, minimum fashion. Well, I, I think C, uh, different point of view. I think CR is important, though, for making sure 
to help keep the encounter balanced that it's not just a TP, TPK or something. See, you know what, man? At this point in my role-playing career, at this point where I'm at, is I give zero fucks about balance anymore. I am just so over the balance and the word balance and the concept of balance. Not just in terms of me as the GM versus like what monsters do I put out, but as in like Ben's character versus Jeff's character and what can they do. You know, I'm just like, we're just here to roll the dice and play the characters, you know? I, th- I agree to a great extent. I mean, but you and you're running a game, when I'm running a game, we've got the advantage of two decades plus of doing this. You know, we can look at a monster and kind of look at the stat line and say, this is not going to kill the party if I throw it at them. Whereas you get, you get people who are picking up with this book for the very first time, and those are the people we need because we need to keep getting fresh lifeblood into this game. No, I mean, I totally agree. I and they 100%. need those CRs and those those tips in order to how to build a encounter so that their players are having a good time and they're. Do you feel like you have a better time when you feel like the encounters are balanced? I mean, be honest. Do you feel like you have a better time? Do do you, both of you? Um, hmm. I I have this sort of like interesting take on all that, and that I don't mind incredibly unbalanced uh, encounters and that I, as a player, um, try to play in such a way that I avoid things that are obviously like, um, you know, world ending for, for the party. Hey, um, we're first level and there's the Tarrasque. Yeah, in much the same way I approach a lot of the games, right? Like, I mean, in, in World of Darkness as a neonate vampire, I'm not going to run up to the prince and be like, fuck you, buddy. But, but here's the thing. Like, in high school... I did just that. I remember the, for my very first game of Vampire the Masquerade, I was playing a Bruja, and I was like, dude, I got fucking potence one, dude. This is fucking sweet. I can, like, do extra damage when I hit things. And I was, and I was like, basically just trying to, like, play the guy from, like, the cover of the Bruja clan book with, like, a black leather motorcycle jacket. And I, I went up to, like, the first other vampire I saw, and I was like, you need to respect me or something. And they were like, fuck you. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, Potence! And then I got my ass kicked. You know why? Because it was the Bruja Primogen. <laughs> I didn't know that. And, 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 and you know what, man? That that changed how I looked at the game. That was a I, I remember that game still. And 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 and, and then uh, my my first experience playing D D in a real organized way was Ravenloft. And Ravenloft was like like the Nam. <laughs> for D and D, you know what I'm saying? You're and, in the shit. Yeah, you're just in the shit, man. And like, and like, everything can kill you, and everything wants to kill you. I think I, I was playing a paladin. I was playing a paladin oh, in oh, Ravenloft. Yeah. All right, so they knew where I was at every given moment. And they were just coming for me, and it's like, I don't know that those were what you'd call balanced encounters. I mean, they no. were they, they were super unbalanced, but I remember them so vividly. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I gotta agree. To, I mean, to some extent, we've all had wonderful games encounters where it was not balanced i mean there's some as much fun as it is sometimes to get your ass handed to you by the prince it can be really really fun as you know your 15th level and walk into a against 20 kobolds and sneeze hard and they all fall over sure but i can remember one of the first games i played back in high school and uh we were playing earth dawn oh man wow tell me more (laughs) and None of us had really played much role-playing before. Can, can we do a little bit about what Earthdawn is, for those that don't know? Basically, it, way back in the day, Earthdawn was a high fantasy setting. Basically, was like 
Shadowrun fantasy. It was made by the same company, used a lot of the same rule systems. It was a D6 system, right? Yeah, it was a D6 system. And there was some there was some basic story connection, right? That like Earth Dawn took place in a mythic age. Earth Dawn and God, I mean, I'm reaching back into the old memory banks here. No, no, I understand. If I remember right, basically, Earth Dawn was the first coming, sort of the first mythic coming of the change that sweeps through the the world yeah. at the beginning okay. of Shadowrun. It was like that was the first time that cycle had happened. Okay, but it's a high fantasy. Yeah, kind of setting. It was it was a Fass's fantasy game. Yeah, and there was even there's even a way at high enough levels to like move a character from one to the other, if I remember right. And that sounds kind of lame. But... And I'm I'm pretty sure it was. We never yeah. did that. <laughs> but our our game master had no idea how to do like set up a of challenge. That was at all balanced. So we kept running into shit that we had no chance of beating. It just pounded us down. We're burning through our consumable healing and mm-hmm. ammunition and everything else. And half the time I have to just run away. And it was so frustrating because we never were advancing because we never gained. You never kill anything. Because we could never kill anything. And, and, and rules as written, that's what you had to do. Right. So in that in that aspect, I still think the CR is a. Is a very useful tool for the young game master. Yeah, I mean, okay, I mean, there's just no, there's no getting around the fact that it has a utility. I guess my like super revulsion just comes from the early days of three O and three point five when I would sit there with the DMG and a calculator, and I would just be like, like an adding machine going like clackety 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 clackety, trying to put together these fucking CRs, and and if you and if you wanted to do something cool, there's like no way to do something cool because it's like you the only way to do like a really fucking cool encounter was to have really high level characters, right? So you're like, oh, I want my characters to find a vampire. Like, okay, well let me find the lowest CR vampire. But he ain't like he's just gonna be sitting in a room by himself. He's gonna have like his little lieutenant guy is gonna be there, and he's gonna have some animated skeletons, right? And like so, boom! You see the CR just going up and up and up and up. There and might be traps in the room. There's, like a, there's probably a trap there. And then, and this is a thing that Five has addressed, which is like, what benefits does does the vampire get from being inside of his domain? Right? They have now for in the monster manual these things called layer actions, which is an action that the monster can only take when inside of its layer, and it's like a cool effect. And that's, ex- I mean, that's exactly the kind of shit that I wanted back in three, where it's like, oh, I, you know, I'm a fucking vampire, and this, and this, this, my room is actually a portal to the Shadowfell type shit. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh, look at, it. I've got a crazy mirror that sucks your soul. Like, how do you calculate that? Like, how do you calculate that for CR? So, so everything I did was like constantly, was, uh either way too high or unrewarding in terms of, of, of how cool it is of what you get to do on the on the table. And then there was nothing for role-playing. They were like, oh, you can assign CRs to uh, social encounters. And I was Ugh, like... That system was horrid. I know. That, that, but, I mean, that's been... Sadly, that's been D&D sort of hampering since day one is that really until, until we're doing this alternate system, there's never really been that good way of rewarding the players... For good role playing, I think that um, you know that's probably one of the reasons why they got rid of all like 
like social rules essentially in fourth edition <laughs> well yeah i mean uh fourth edition played in some ways like i've heard a lot of people hearken it to wow I've heard a lot of people, uh, just a big board game but in some ways it was almost like a return to um the original D D modules which were just giant dungeon crawls through castles you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like it's like it's room to room to room to room. And the role playing was what happened when you weren't killing monsters. If you did role playing, yeah. If you chose to do role playing, and I mean, and it is understandable. I mean, if you look at the cover of like the original set, it says something like mini, uh, uh, "rules for miniatures." You know, I mean, that's almost like saying like, "Oh, well, why isn't there any more like good role playing in Warhammer 40k?" Which I think I have actually said in real life. You know, like, oh, there needs to be more role-playing going on while we're, you know, fighting with our Jeeps or whatever the fuck it is, this, you know, this game is. So, I mean, okay. Alien bugs. So, a, a lot, uh, well, some of the, some of the, um, the criticism I did receive from people outside of the uh, uh, party, because I did, I ran this idea by them, um, some other friends. Okay. Uh, was that 2-3-2-3 two, three, two, three is going to be too fast. I mean, how, I mean, talk to me, you guys, about about advancement in in this game and other games. Like, how fast is too fast? How slow is too slow? I I think really that to to sort of talk about that is sort of like long term. Where do you see what do you see happening here? Um, do you think that this is a game you're going to be wanting to play ten years from now? You think it's a game you want to play? Well, out of the abyss. Well, the characters from out of the abyss and some other adventure maybe, or uh, is this something that you want to do like? You know, five years from now, or is two to three years kind of what you're seeing? I'm thinking two to three years. Then I think it's fine the level of advancement that we have because we'll be, you know, we'll hit like max level around that point. Yeah, I mean, because I think that I think out of the abyss is supposed to go to fifteen, and then I always want to go to twenty. I've never made to twenty yet. I want to go to twenty. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that it's. I, mean, I think we got to play it to kind of see, but I know from my experience that kind of every eight to ten hours of table time. Like I said, it tends to kind of translate into a level, and that's kind of what we're doing. Yeah, I think in the past it always depended on, like, it, it levels sort of came in, in I want to say bunches, but they sort of, there were definitely sessions you played where there wasn't, like, a, at least from my experience in, say, 3-5, and there were definitely sessions where we had where we spent in town and there was no combat, you know, that did, yeah, did happen. Yeah, yeah, it's um, true. And when that kind of stuff happens, obviously you, you weren't gaining a lot of experience. Um <clears throat> Having said that, I, there were those extra game sessions where that kind of stuff happened in there, and they sort of like drug it out even further. Um, but I, but I, but I really th- think that we should look at what the goal is for this, and whether or not we want, we're looking for a three-year game, whether or not we're looking for like a long-term game. I mean, go ahead. Well, and I don't know. I mean, even if you're following the standard D and D sort of module for leveling up, I think it's hard to get a D and D game past a certain point. If you're trying to keep the party, party parity, you might say. Um, no, I mean now we're talking about like the balance of classes, though, right? No, no, I mean, let, let, when someone's character dies, letting them bring in oh, a new character yeah, at basically yeah, the same yeah. level as the rest of the party. That shit sucks. Um, because once you hit a couple, a couple of characters at twentieth level, I mean, the types of stories you can run become much more difficult i mean because there's so well, right because you're limited and so what what challenges this party of like yeah. monstrous individuals you know? yeah no it's true so I, I think really you and i've always had the most fun doing that of you play up to 20 you finish off whatever the big earth-shaking quest is that is enough to get 
five or six 20th level characters in a room together. Because if you if you think about, and I think that D&D, the 5th edition, does a really good job of this. If you look at the, the table in the player's guide on levels, it does a really good job of kind of spelling out what each grouping of levels really means. It's like one through five, you're just kind of getting your identity as an adventurer. I think um, I kind of like skipped this table, unfortunately. That sounds really cool. Do you want me to find it? You want me to get it for you? Uh, no, it's cool. I'll let we can let we can let uh, Jeffrey to describe like it for us. Six through ten, you're now like a known power in the world, or certainly in the kingdom, and you're dealing with things that you know. At one through five, you're saving like the small town. Okay. At six through ten, you're dealing with kingdoms and greater world politics to some extent. At eleven through fifteen, you're dealing definitely with major kingdoms and possibly continental issues, and at 16 through 20, you're dealing with earth-shaking events that the entire fate of the earth or the, even the universe rests on your characters. You're basically earth-shaking characters that so, like move and cause things to happen. They're yeah. basically saying that like uh, they've, they've adjusted um, 15th is now epic level. They're now saying your 15 to 20 is epic level. Like, like, don't expect an epic level handbook, which is kind of relief in a certain sense. But, like, right? Because if that's what they're saying, they're saying that, like, the concerns of an epic level character now start at 15. And that's actually kind of hot because, to be honest, I don't remember reading that either. It's been, like, a while since I read the core book. And um, that's uh, that's a really refreshing perspective. Yeah, and, I mean, and you think about it. Okay, if, if that's one character is something that can affect the fate of a world or some portion of the multiverse what kind of threat gets six 20th level characters all sitting around a you know a table with the king planning their next action i mean so i think for a dm no, that's a good call that's a good point that's a really good point what do you what do you throw at these guys i mean how many times do they have to fight yeah. bahamut the tarask no yeah. no, no absolutely I, t- I hear that i hear that that's a that's an excellent point so yeah, I think that sort of really drives home. Then even what you're saying is like, what do you see? Where do you see this going? No, no, that, no. I, I I totally take your point. I totally take your point. And I think it's like a it'll be a fun kind of casual slash immersive game for the next like couple of years if we continue to like re up it like on the way that you know you do when you come sure. get to a point where you want to take a break and then you're like, well, do we want to keep doing this or do we not? You know. Um, and there's all these other games we're always thinking about. There's always more games on the back burner. Speaking of, I mean, well, let's get to that in a second. But um. One of the games that always I felt had a very frustrating experience system, despite the fact that I loved the game so much, was uh, Vampire the Masquerade. Mm. And it's because in that game, there's this kind of elasticity about time, right? Yes. Like, I suppose you could... D&D doesn't have a real system for this, and be you know, hey, Wizards developers, if you're listening to this, it would be cool if there was a book or a system, kind of like the old Birthright campaign setting, guys, um, that dealt with, like, long-term play and kingdom building and legacies and multi-generational conflicts. But for the most part, D&D adventures seem to be kind of dilated into sort of, like, quests. Like, if you look at, especially the ones that they've released, um, Princess of the Apocalypse, uh, Rage of, or, uh, 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 Rage of Demons, Dragon Queen, whatever one, that one, they're all kind of like, oh, you know, and the, you, you read them and you get this sense that, like, over a period of weeks or months, characters will go from first level to 15th level. 
But in Vampire, you're dealing with characters that you're playing on like a night-to-night basis, you know, because a lot of that vampire shit kind of like comes down to like, okay, well, yesterday this happened. It's a new session. What do we do tonight? And then you'll be like, okay, well, we finished that plot arc. You guys like dethroned the prince of the city or whatever. Now it's like 200 years later, you know? And it's like, and how much experience do you fucking award somebody for 200 years? And they had so many systems for that, you know? And like... Yeah, I want to say that like in terms of like... um my earliest memories of the system there were things that i liked about it um certainly like in regards to the nightly role-playing right they they correct me if i'm wrong but they but experience was awarded at the end of like at the end of like arcs right or is that something we did or is that something something we did okay that might be the case because i know that i've done it both ways with vampire in particular where i'm like oh it's the end of the session because i mean keep in mind that it says in the old masquerade books it would say at the end of every session you get an experience point remember that yeah and, and i just thought that was like ridiculous one whole experience point at the end of the i mean an experience point in vampire is very is a, is valuable no I, I i think that that what i what i liked the most about it was the fact that they encouraged um in an effort and, and i think maybe in some ways it didn't work out as well as 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 they wanted but it certainly it certainly um had merit was the encouragement of role playing through experience, right? Where yeah. you, you as, oh, a, yeah, as a storyteller, you were encouraged to to give out experience, extra experience for for great role playing. Right. There was that one point that went to one player in the group for great role playing, and then there was like role playing your nature and know that that got you willpower. There was some other thing. Anyway, what my problem was is your, your flaws. Role playing your flaws, your virtue, and your. Uh... Virtues got extra experience. Well, vir- oh, your virtues, like your like your what conscience and your self control and all that shit. No, no, you had because they're the, or the that's, opposite. That's requiem. No, it's the opposite of the flaws because you could take those merits. now merits. Merits didn't yield XP. Not as far as I. Or was remember. it just the flaws that did? I don't even remember if flaws yield. Did your flaws yield XP? Maybe they did. I think that they might have. Especially if they were ones that I like affected your role playing that you had to make sure to keep. Yeah, yeah. Like uh-huh. the phobias and the and the and the clan enmities and the yeah and the hatreds and the rages and the all that <laughs> oh. stacked with bruja and all that. I I'm a, I, I'm a uh, psychopathic killer. <laughs> well, you, that just pretty much describes almost every vampire. <laughs> but, yeah, but 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 I no, mutter, mutter. but I but I did like that part of the experience system. The fact that it was you know meant to sort of um, uh, herald greater role playing, and I think it encouraged a lot of us to sort of like step out of the box when we were first. Because I mean, when we first started playing Vampire, I mean, we were still in high school. And, Ugh, uh, I know, right? It was almost embarrassing. Yeah, but it was it was the growth of our like role playing experience, you know. And I think that it sort of. That that was sort of a catalyst for how we saw role playing, how it changed how we saw role playing anyway. Yeah. Um. And and uh, I think it improved a lot of us. It improved a lot of our role playing. I know when I was running Masquerade, one thing I always like make my players do is as they were wanting to expend experience points, they had to role play those expenditures. So, if it was something big they wanted to change, then that was something that had to be done during a long, an appropriately long stretch of downtime. Um. Something that was more straightforward, like learning another language, or they would have to tell me, you know, every night I'm spending so much time of the night working on this new language, or 
and you'll so make it. So not only did they have to earn the XP in the first place, then they had to role play. Yeah, spending it. Spending it. And that's good. I think that in the past I've been too, um, too generous with giving you guys opportunities. Because I remember specifically when we were playing like Giovanni and stuff, and people would be like, "Oh, well, I want to learn like some fortitude or something." I'd be like, "Oh, well, yeah. I mean, you're the savage. You could probably like me. Somebody will teach you that. Sure, just take it. <laughs> Fuck that. Never again." Well, I, I mean, the rules I the rules I would use for the disciplines in my game was that the physical disciplines, celerity, fortitude, potence. Um, that's it. Yeah, maybe Protean, maybe. No, not Protean, but those three could be learned by any character because they were just a magnification of sort of the vampiric condition. Okay. More resilient to damage, stronger, faster. All right. Um, still having to pay them at the out of clan, those higher costs. If they were at a clan, right? Clan. For the for any other discipline they wanted, you absolutely had to find someone. To teach you that discipline. Yeah. And I was always very stingy about, especially some of the more exotic disciplines. Dude, amen to that, brother. You know, great. You're Just because you're a are, member Are you of, trying to say that if I, as a character in your game, want to learn Temporis, I couldn't? Not unless through some amazing role-playing you find, A, someone who has Temporis, and B... Now, now here's a question that's slightly off-topic. Now, go ahead. Tell me B first. Well, and B through some amazing role-playing, somehow convince uh, that character. And I'll give you an example. I, I had a character one time that wanted to learn something exotic. They went and hunted out a character that actually knew that discipline, an NPC, tried to seduce the character to uh, teach it to them, <laughs> and rolled something like nine tens. Oh my on god! Their Are roll. you fucking kidding me? No, I mean they just they just kept rolling tens and re-rolling into more tens. What the deuces? Exploding tens. You know, it was one of those things of all right, you know, a roll like that, I gotta reward that. I mean, that so is, what did they learn? What did they get out of this? Was it temporis. Uh, they was it wanted you know, it wasn't temporis. It was the azamite, the quietus. Oh, that's all. That's not even that exotic. I mean, that's kind of exotic. Or no, no, I'm sorry. It was the old thermaturgy. Oh, okay. The oh, okay. The yeah. old asthmatic thermaturgy or uh, uh, coldonic thermaturgy. Coldonic thermaturgy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's pretty out there. Yeah, that is. Um, but you know, I felt that they they'd set up the situation where they got to even make this roll through a lot of very good role playing. Sure, sure. And then you get roll that mini dice and successfully, I I feel that the player should have been rewarded. And yeah, okay. It's hard to say no when somebody's showing you all those tens. Yeah. As you know well. <laughs> As you know well, my friend. Um, I have made a decision in my head that the next vampire game I'm going to run, you'll be allowed to increase your in-clan disciplines without need of a benefactor to teach you because they're like your blood, like essentially attempting to like assert itself. It's sort of a mystical process. Yeah, exactly. It's the clan welling up in you. But out of clan, you will have to find a patron, and you will have to role play, as you just described. You will have to role play just like like, like you're crawling through the mud over broken glass because I have been so boned so many times by weird discipline combos and just utter bullshit. I'm just 
Never again, dude. <laughs> well, of course, again. one of the difficulties just... you have with the, the training ground sort of thing is what do you do when two members of the... Uh, of the party? Of the party start, start teaching they discipline. Start, they start 69 each other. <laughs> a little bit of that. A little bit of a little bit of one hand washes the other. I'm exactly. Making a rude gesture. Um, Was that something that happened often in your, in your games? Not really. I mean, it, it would happen... Because I have a hard time imagining a lot of our characters getting along to such an extent. Oh, I know that we would like be like, "Hey guys, can I teach you my discipline?" I I, I run a, I run this one off World of Darkness thing for these guys for Iron GM, and by the end of it, they're like they have knives at each other's throats, guns at each other's heads. They never How, played it either. Never, <laughs> Gee, yeah. That's never happened in any of our campaigns. Ha, We've yeah, never well, no, I know, but I'm just I'm, I'm just saying, like, how is it that you run World of Darkness and you don't have everybody like sitting there in like this like the Tarantino style like fucking like. Uh, Mexican standoff by the end of it. In fact, they're all like, "Hey, you want a word in vacation too?" At least, at least like a smoldering uh, anger and dislike for the other characters, which oh. you know they, they they deal with, but but uh, certainly exists, and they're not willing, obviously, to like sit down and share the like greatest mystical secret <laughs> of their like being with them. You yeah. know, I mean, no, these are my most, clan's treasured secrets. Most of the most of the players, yeah, absolutely. But you know, it's always that at some point you need something from that other character and. That's one thing you can always offer up in trade is some training in a discipline. And the, the disciplines that tended to kind of get passed around, like a cheap beer, were the Protean. Protean. Uh, <laughs> fucking Auspex, Protean. Dominate. I'm surprised Auspex. That surprises me. It's such a common discipline. What, you mean there's so many clans that have it? Right. Yeah, but... And it's not especially... I mean, it's not... It, I mean, there's no, only one clan that has Protean, and that's... I can actually think of only one reason why that one gets Fucking passed around. Fucking gangrel, dude. Uh, Fucking stupid gangrel. What was the other? Dom- presence. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Presence and Dominator had by a few different, and so is Auspex. I can see that. Presence and Auspex. Now we're becoming, we're, we're, it's all, it's coming f- into fruition, isn't it? The White Wolf nerds is like, it's like we're werewolves. We're like, ooh. Anyway, like, <laughs> like, Presence and Auspex have those first couple levels that are like, surprisingly good you know and then you get up into the upper echelons and you're just like fuck it man i don't need it you know i already got that you know there's like presence two or whatever right is is is, is where you go like i hate you and then they like run away and they, they, they turn dread it, gaze dread gaze they turned it into an entire discipline for requiem <laughs> they turned it they turned they turned that one discipline power into an entire discipline interesting anecdote i remember a game oh my in God. which in which uh the final confrontation with a character was thwarted by one character's application of Dread Gaze. One, yeah, because at that point I didn't really... Because, I mean, that's the thing about playing is you learn the powers of the game by experiencing them from your from your players. And, um, yeah, man, I had that big boss battle set up. Because, you know, I try to do, do a little something for everybody at the end, you know? And then, like, like this was Heiligman's character, and Heiligman's nemesis guy was there, and, ne- and Heilig goes, I Dread Gaze him. And I'm like, uh, I guess roll it. And he's like, he rolls it. I'm like, oh, uh, comparing it against his willpower or something, which was like really low. It was like his dumb stat. I was like, put like two dots in it or something retarded, you know? And then I'm like, uh, do I get like a roll to resist? I'm like reading. I'm like, nope, nothing. He I'm just, running away. He fails. Uh, I guess he just leaves. I had a situation like that one time. I forget how this combination had come up. And I kicked myself ever after for ever allowing it in my game and refused to ever allow it again. What? I had a, I had a player character who had both Quietus okay. and um, the La Sombra discipline. Uh, Obtenebration. 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 
And they had them at that level, the quietest level, where like they completely blank out all sound. Uh-huh. And then obtenebration at the level where it does like just the inky blackness that fills the area. Okay. And we're using that to like try and assassinate their enemies. Yeah. Huh? It's like, okay, it's a really cool combo, it. and I'm never allowing this combo ever again. Obtenebration is kind of like the entire magic system in Dungeons and Dragons, where there's like all these like really weird things you could do with it. Like depending on how your storyteller lets you do stuff with it, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, like, well, there's got to be darkness inside of this guy's stomach, right? So I'm just gonna make like tentacles oh. like erupt out of his head and tear him apart. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, deal with that, Jack, jackass. You know, I don't know. Yeah, no, that there was a there was a certain type of player that liked obtenebration. I remember. That uh, that really liked as a discipline, attempted to exploit it. Fucking obtenebration is a shit. It's a yeah. great. It's a great discipline. I think it's a great thematic one. I don't necessarily it's... think that. Uh, I've seen. I've seen a lot of abuses of it over the years. Like who? Uh, Chris. What did he do with it? Oh man. I, you I'll... you have to okay if you it this is okay this is just like fucking Canonescu and his war form fucking like <laughs> Trubdian marauder like extravaganzas okay well, hold this is just exactly hold on, hold on, hold on. this is this is the same fucking thing you can't go getting on chris about that no when no you were there's the, a certain the terror of giovanni chronicles I, okay i admit that i was the terror of giovanni chronicles but you know ultimately <clears throat> that was because that that uh that freaking uh Horrid form. I didn't have Trooped and Marauder. I had Horrid form. Because if you I remember, wouldn't let you have Trooped and Marauder. No, no. I took an alternate one instead of Trooped and Marauder. What'd you take? I took uh, that Entrail Saraband. Entrail Saraband. Oh, I forgot yes, about that. Yes. I, okay. Sink let you play Trooped and Marauder, right? No. Um, I you wasn't saw playing a it somewhere. Uh, uh, Ryan played Ryan a Trooped and Marauder Zimacy in the Transylvania Chronicles. And, and, and you were, and I heard all these fucking stories about it. Oh, yeah, you I tore was, through everything. And I was like, I'm never going to allow this fucking Tripian Marauder in my goddamn game. And then you're like, well, uh, in that case, I'd like to try this other thing, Entrail Saraband. And it was just like, and that was like the fucking bane of my life for like years. <laughs> I, I thought it was really cool and really like evocative. But, uh, well, yeah. I, I mean, sort of it was this like crazy clothonic being at times that it I could was, use it was. my entrails to like explode out and grab things. It was, it was cool. I mean, except when I was sitting there watching my plots go down the toilet because they were all being killed by somebody's entrails, for <laughs> Christ's sake. Yeah, um, that character was a bit of a monster. Yeah, a little bit. All right, so, Jeff, tell us real quick about your um, Inquisitor game because you ran uh, Inquisitor and you, you leveled those guys up. And I remember that that's a fantasy flight game and it had an incredibly punishing experience curve so we'll hear your thoughts on that and then we'll go ahead and wrap what what lay it on me string yeah, i mean dark heresy definitely oh dark heresy that's what that game's called it's not called inquisitor yeah has a i mean it's a slow burn curve and what do you mean by that yeah elaborate. i mean it takes a quite a while to get from zero to first level mm. or for, i remember that actually and it and you slowly and then like second levels a little bit faster third levels a little bit faster until you're kind of hitting you know, you kind of hit that level every eight to ten hours point. It it took us about three years, three and a half years, to get to the max out the levels in the base book. Wow. And that gets you all the way up until... And basically, at that point, you're now a known inquisitorial agent. You're, Jesus. You're, you're, you played that game for three years? Uh, we've been playing for four and a half. Oh, wow. 
I guess you said that like just like a few <laughs> minutes ago, didn't you? Oh, um, Jesus Christ! Uh, one of the I remember I... when you first started that game. Yeah, oh, it... that's, that was pre-LA for you, right? Yeah, it was. So you've been on break for a while. One of the interesting things in that game really was, though, the fact that you don't get that much tougher as you level up. You get a bunch of new skills and a bunch of like new options for how to do things, but a good shot from a plasma pistol has just as much chance of killing like a eighth level acolyte as it does the newest uh, inducted guardsman. Mm. So, it's a, so it's a lethal game. Very lethal. Very lethal. I mean, my players were burning through their fate points like crazy the first. Oh, yeah, yeah, those fate points. I forgot about that. Yeah, it's kind of a weird system. It's a percentile system, right? Percentile system, and then you have the fate points, which for each fate point you have, you can uh, expend it to ro- re-roll one dice at any time during a game session or yeah. burn it, permanently lose it, to keep from dying. Oh, yeah. How do you get them back? Um... Certain events, if you're running like a pre-generated story, will get you a fake oh, point they back. They automatically generate them. Um, since I've ran very few pre-gens, I would generally have like one or two actions throughout each story arc that whichever player accomplished that action would... Mm, you just built them in yourself. Yeah. You know what, man? I want to have you on sometime to talk about um, homebrews versus modules. Okay. Because you... Love to. We've definitely... You and I have both done both. And the good way is that you awarded fate points there at the end of each story arc. So I never had to have that problem of like characters suddenly changing their stats on me mid story. Yeah, that's and, a bo- that's a bummer. And that's how the game is designed to run: is that you only award XP at the end of each story arc. Yeah, and then they had an epic level book, right? They did have an epic level book. Did you get it, to use it? We did. We the the campaign I'm running now is the first. Uh, campaign running using that book uh-huh. um, and it really moves the characters into sort of what the bigger inquisitorial agents that you see in the tabletop game would be. oh my god seriously yeah we've got like crazy psychers and like power armor and like crazy psychers uh, one of the characters is now a vindicar assassin oh, oh wow shit. that's, that's cool that's pretty hot uh, that's... one of the characters is a full-on inter- uh, interrogator uh-huh. uh, I refu- there's actually options in there for one of the player characters to become a full-blown inquisitor but i chose not to allow any of the players to take that option uh i felt like it was just with the group i was running letting one person have that level of authority in the group would be really disbalancing it was better to keep the inquisitor as an npc i can see that with that game i, in particular. I think that probably depends on your group though too oh heavily, yeah. okay. heavily. this is totally a topic for another this is a, i mean this is this is a hot button one like leaders group leaders and like authority inside the party. I definitely want to come We've back. We've had a lot of interesting this. games with that. As a <laughs> well, focal point over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Have we, they seems like they always melt down anyway, or they provide for fun stories. <laughs> well, that's the thing about role playing, whether it was a good session or a bad session, whether you had fun with that game or it was like the worst game ever. It comes with a good story. You know, it's going to be a good story later on in the future. I have these memories of like being at these vampire games where essentially I put my head down on the table and I was like trying to sleep and then like, <laughs> like and I was like uh, so I mean they were not very good games but it made for good stories. Nice. All right, fellas. Well, how do you feel about wrapping it up here? I think that sounds good. All right. Uh, well, I want to thank Jeff for coming by. I really appreciate it. Your insights are golden, my friend. I do hope that you will return. Love to. 
And uh, Ben and I, we're going to go ahead and sign off. Till next time, we're hoping um, Dustin's going to come in. He had some family stuff come up. He wasn't able to come in. Fortunately, Jeff here was able to step in and cover for him. Um, since we've spoken last, uh, unfortunately, um, just darkness has befallen the Lamentations of the Flame Princess proposed actual play podcast game. We've just had too many people have scheduling problems, and the lineup just keeps changing, so we're going to go ahead and let that one go. Maybe consider a live play podcast some point in the future. Yeah, in the future. I think it's, it's still on the table for the future, but in the meantime, I'm just going to kind of honor the obligations I have to the games that I currently have going, and then we're just, you know, and I'm going to we're look into some other stuff. Go to some other stuff, you know. I miss I miss the world of darkness, man. I want I want to return. Do I. I want I want to return with my favorite friends. Giovanni Chronicles again, baby. Oh, I know. Okay, well we. You know what? This is this is this is a, this is another another good topic. We should be writing this shit down. Another good topic. Like like, can you go back? Uh, to see the story that once was. Uh, read yes. it again. Yes. Uh, there are there are novels you can pick up again and read again. No. Yeah, uh, this is. Just, as soon as we hit pause on this thing, I want you guys to write down these other proposed topics. Anyway, all right, fellas, it's been great to see you. Uh, dear listeners, thank you for, for stopping by. We appreciate the listens. Uh, Check us out. Uh, we're going to have shirts coming out at some point. Shirts. We're going to have we have we have Facebook presence. We have an Instagram presence. Um, follow us. Yes, please do. Uh, hope you all enjoy listening to the podcast. Thank you very much, and good night. We sincerely hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Full Metal RPG. If so, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and now Tumblr at Full Metal RPG. Follow us on SoundCloud at Full Metal RPG. You are listening to Abyssal Plains by Legion. Used with permission.